Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 23, page 1050 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 23, we'll begin by reading the first 12 verses. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but do not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, For you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If you have your Bible, take it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 this morning. In our study of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has asserted his identity And his authority in both symbols and parables in this gospel. He is saying by the symbolism of coming into Jerusalem, the parables that he's taught in Jerusalem, he is clearly saying to the people, I am the promised Messiah. And the idea that Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph and Mary's son, the idea that he is the one promised in the Old Testament is offensive to the religious leaders, especially the scribes, those whose job it was to interpret the Old Testament, and the Pharisees, those whose job it was to tell the religious uh, 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 understanding of how to do God's will and who God is and how to relate to Him, those two major groups were offended by Jesus. And so last week we saw them, Pharisees and scribes, and the Sadducees try to trap Jesus by exposing idolatry, inconsistency, insufficiency, and inadequacy in Him. We ended that in the end of chapter 22, if you remember, with Jesus and answering all of their questions, then asking them a question and him making a clear claim that the Messiah is not only the son of David, he's not only a descendant of David, but he's also Lord and requires for us to submit ourselves to him. And Jesus is that Messiah. At the end of chapter 22, the Bible says that the religious leaders, those Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes, were silenced and dared not ask him another question. No more would they ask Jesus questions. And so we ended there with them asking that, but we pick up in chapter 23, and Jesus has not been silenced, and he is not done. So he turns to the crowds and the disciples and commences to exposing the bankruptcy of the false religion of the Pharisees and scribes. Let me set the scene for you if I can. 
I reminded you a couple of weeks ago that we're in the temple precinct. That is the place where the people would come to worship the Lord. They're not in the holy place. They're in the court of the Gentiles. This is where teachers would stand and teach. And Jesus is there. Big, wide open space. About 33 acres of space there in this time at Jerusalem. And so he's standing there teaching. There are crowds that are getting around. Chapter 23, verse 1. His disciples are there. And so he turns from the scribes and the Pharisees. And he begins to address his Disciples and church, these words that you have heard read and through this entire chapter are really, really hard words. They expose, listen to me carefully, they expose not adulterers and the sexually promiscuous. Jesus is not condemning drunks and drug addicts here. He is not addressing liars and thieves here. He's not addressing murderers. He's not even condemning those who are there because they're Buddhist or Muslim or any other blatantly false religion. These are people who claim to know the God of the Bible and to lead others to know Him and to do His Will. So friends, this morning, don't read this text as if it's for all of those people that the woes and the condemnation of the false religion that Jesus is exposing here belongs to all of those people. Jesus is talking to people just like us. And he uses words like this, hypocrite, Blind guide, blind fool, greedy, self-indulgent, serpent, brood of vipers, and a child of hell to describe them. John MacArthur in his commentary on this text of scripture says this, Out of Jesus' mouth on this occasion came the most fearful and dreadful statements that Jesus uttered on the earth. And it's not just for those, it is for us Don't be so quick to read through this and think, this is not about me. Let me say a couple of statements to you and then invite us into the text. Number one, you could be the most religious person in this room and not understand the gospel and be on your way to hell. You may understand the gospel in this room, but yet have remaining areas of sin where this text will confront you and demand repentance. So don't listen to this for those people. Listen to this for us. We'll look at the entire chapter together. There are three sections that I believe this text easily divides into. First, you heard read verses 1 through 12, Jesus addressing his disciples and and the crowds. He gives them an exhortation beginning in verse 13 all the way down through verse 36. There are seven woes where Jesus evaluates the Pharisees. So in verse 13, he turns to the scribes and Pharisees and begins to address them. This is the evaluation of Jesus of false religion. And then in verses 37 through 39, we will quickly cover at the end an exhortation exclamation of Jesus that includes an invitation to you and I. And so let's look at it together. First, Jesus' exhortation to his disciples and the crowds. Verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and disciples, the scribes and Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. Jesus makes three accusations against the Pharisees in this text. Now, before we even jump into one of these, 
If you have a pen and a piece of paper, let me challenge you this morning. Take some notes. I'm going to walk through this pretty quickly. I want to encourage you, admonish you, exhort you. Take this text, read it uh, when you get home this afternoon, sometime in the week, and walk through some of this and allow the Spirit of God to just open up your heart. And so let's look at it. His exhortation, he makes three accusations against the Pharisees in the midst of this exhortation that he is going to give the crowds and his disciples. The first accusation is that they, are inconsistent in their teaching and their lives. They had tried to show how Jesus was inconsistent. He is going to clearly show how they are now. Verses 2 and 3, they sit on the seat of Moses. That simply means that they have been charged as stewards of the Old Testament. They are the ones that are supposed to understand God's Word in the Old Testament Scriptures. They sit on His seat. They follow in the line of Moses. And yet, even in doing so, they speak then the words of God. They read the text of Scripture to you. But Jesus gives an exhortation here. Practice and observe what they say. Why? Because it is God's Word. What they are saying and what they are doing are two different things. They're inconsistent in their standards, or excuse me, in their teaching, what they say and what they do. And so while they're stewards of the law and had the responsibility to know it and assist others to know the will of God, Jesus says what they say to you is right, what they do in their life does not match what they Teach And so his first exhortation is found in the end of verse 3, do not follow them. He says, do not do what they do. Second accusation against the Pharisees beginning in verse 4, they are inconsistent in their standards for you, for others, and their standard for themselves. So look at verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens. You get the picture there. They're tying up packs and putting them on you and on your back so that you have to bear them. They are hard to bear, and they lay them on your shoulders. But, into verse 4, they're not willing to move them with a finger. Jesus says they're not only inconsistent in their teaching and their lives, they're inconsistent in their standard for you and their standard for themselves. In other words, they're putting heavy burdens on the people. You know, I've already said it, that in the Old Testament, the Pharisees had come up with 613 rules, commands of God there, and said, if you'll keep all of these... You'll be right with God. You'll be doing the will of God. And then they come up with books and books and books of how to keep these rules. Like what you can wear on Sunday without, or on the Sabbath without breaking the law of the Sabbath. What you can cook on, on the Sabbath without breaking the law of the Sabbath. They come up with books and books of how you could do this. And so they're inconsistent. They tell you this is how you're to do it. And they don't live that way. They'll not move a finger in their own life. Thirdly. Third accusation against them. They are idolatrous in their motives and actions. Look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And then he gives examples of how they are driven by the thoughts and the approval of others. So they're idolatrous in their motive. They want you to look at them and say, man, you must know the Lord. You must be holy. You're way holier than I am. And Jesus accuses them and then he gives the examples in the middle of verse 5. 
uh, he says, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. These were two things the Old Testament talked about, about the people of God. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, we know is the Shema. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Uh, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And they would write these key texts. And he says, keep these in front of your eyes. And so they would make phylacteries. They would make small leather boxes and tie them around their forehead and keep little pieces of parchment with little pieces of Scripture right there. And he says, you make your phylacteries broad. You put a lot of Scripture so you're holding it right in front of your face so you're always reminded about it. And you make them broad so that everybody says, man, look at how much Scripture he's got written on his forehead. You make your fringes long. These are the tassels that they would wear. And numbers required them to wear tassels. And there were debates on how long they had to be. And there were uh, uh, those, those scribes and Pharisees who said, the longer the tassel, the holier the man. And so you make your tassels long and your phylacteries wide so that others will look at you and say, man, how holy they must be. Not only that, when you go to banquets, verse 6 and following, you love the place of honor. When you go to synagogues, you love the place of honor there. And you love it when people walk up to you and say, Rabbi, you are such a teacher. And he says, you are living for the approval of others. And so what does he exhort? Verse 8 begins his exhortation. Two things. First, don't exalt yourself over others. Don't exalt yourself over others. He says there essentially, verse 8, look at it with me, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. You're all brothers and sisters. My friends, this is why in our church we don't give titles. We are equal level at the foot of the cross. We're all equal before him and need a savior, every one of us. He goes on to say you're not to be called father. He goes on to say you're not to be called instructor. The word rabbi there is not one that we really struggle with in our day. You don't know anybody that's called uh, rabbi. I would say it's analogous in our day to be called, being called reverend. Something that even when I came here, I think uh, churches have had in the past a habit of calling pastors and we're ordained and so they put reverend in front of your name. And I told our church even when I came, I don't want to be called reverend, don't call me reverend. I grew up in a home where my grandfather would always say, if he heard anybody say reverend so and so, he would always say there's only one to be revered. And I think he was exactly right, there is only one to be revered. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Don't, don't put yourself above others. Don't exalt yourself above others. We are all, church, you and I together, all of us in here, there's no one that's greater, there's no one that's more holy, and oh, you're going to be so honored because of your holiness or because of your big uh, uh, leather boxes strapped to your forehead or your tassels on your clothes. We are in need of Jesus. And so we have one teacher, his name is Jesus. We have one father, his name is God. We have one instructor, his name is Christ. And so we should not exalt ourselves above, above others. We are all brothers and sisters. Second exhortation that goes along with it. Not only don't exalt yourself, but I believe he's saying in verse 11, humble yourself and serve. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. He says, not only are you not to exalt yourself above others, now I'm going to tell you, put yourself under others. Become the slave of others. And that is not just here, that's all throughout the New Testament. This reminds us of Jesus saying the first will be last and the last will be first just a few chapters ago. Where Jesus is saying to you, if you want to follow me, don't 
exalt yourself, rather humble yourself and serve others. Now he says it again, both ways in verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so here's the exhortation. If you today want to open up your life before the Lord, you're going to have to identify with scribes and Pharisees or followers of Christ. Religious people or those who are in relationship with Jesus. And he says, one of the ways that you need to see if you are in the faith is do you exalt yourself above others or do you humble yourself and serve others? So now Jesus turns to the Pharisees and the scribes who he has just been accusing and exhorting us not to do what they do. And he is going to evaluate them. So not only Jesus' exhortation, secondly, beginning in verse 13, Jesus' evaluation of the scribes. There are seven woes here in verses 13 through 36. I hope that you have a pen and a pencil because we're going to fly through these. There are seven of them. The first six of them can be taken in groups of two. And then the last one is by itself. So you will see four of them as we go through this. So let me just tell you, here's what we're going to look at in verses 13 through 36. Four condemning principles of false religion. Four condemning principles of false religion. Let me say it a little more personally so it may really make an impact. Here's what I think the next four principles are going to be for us. If you want to ask, what what is this going to do in my life? Here it is. How to know your religion is sending you to hell. If you want to know this morning how your religion is sending you to hell, then Jesus is going to to look at the religious people. These are the most religious people in His day. And He's going to say, here's how you know your religion is sending you to hell. So, let's look at it together. Seven woes, four principles. Number one, you overextend your own authority while overlooking the actual results. You over extend your own authority while overlooking the actual results. Look at verse 13. He says to them, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, in six of these seven woes, that's how he starts. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That is, you say you believe one thing and you do something else. That is, the hypocrite is, is the one who was in the, the old Greek theaters. This is a, a, a term of Jesus' day. And the same person might put a mask on and play this part. He would go to the back, grab another mask, and put it up and play this part. But you never knew who it was because they're always holding a mask. And Jesus is saying, you're holding a mask up, but it's not who you really are. And I'm going to tell you who you really are. And your religion, this mask that you're holding that's uh, covering up who you really are, is not going to get you to heaven. As a matter of fact, I'm going to bring the mask back and expose you hypocrites and show you who you really are and why that is going to condemn you. And so Jesus pulls the first mask back and he says, you have overextended your own authority. You've put yourself in the place of authority, even over God, while overlooking your natural, your, your actual results. Look at verse 13. He says, for you shut the the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
And you might think, well, pastor, I'm good on that one. I've never shut the kingdom of heaven in anybody's face. Well, let me say, what is the entrance to the kingdom of heaven? It is Christ alone. It is by faith alone in Christ alone. It is His grace that brings us in the kingdom of heaven. So when you and I make any other statement, when we raise our authority up above Him and say, well, that person surely can't get into the kingdom of heaven, or that person surely is not going to heaven, and we make our own little judgments on people and we take the the place of judge we're raising ourselves and saying if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven you need to be like me you need to dress like me you need to talk like me you need to do the things that I do and we make rules like that and we extend our authority over people and most of the time we're telling them they have to be like us in order to get in the kingdom of heaven and Jesus is saying you shut it in people's faces because they're not like you He says it again down in verse 13. He says, not only do you shut it in people's faces, but you're zealous about your own authority and your own rules. Look at what he says. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You see, Jesus is saying you, when you raise your authority up, So that you say, well, this kind of person can't go to heaven or this kind of person is in and that kind of person is not. Think about what's going on in our culture even now. When we get to that place, church, we have done exactly what the Pharisees are doing. And what does Jesus say? Here's the the condemning part, the end of verse 13. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You are standing in the way of other people getting into the kingdom because they look and say, well, I'm not like you. I don't dress like you. I don't talk like you. I don't live quite like you. I don't do those things that you have made essential, so I must not be in. And they go away. You have shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and you don't even know, not only are you not going, but neither would those who would enter in. That's condemning of religion putting its authority over the Savior. God help us, especially when verse 14 is true, verse 15 is true, when we are zealous about doing so. Have you ever noticed those people that add to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're typically really, really, really excited and zealous about the rules that they've added to the gospel? Oh, they might be glad to talk about Jesus, but if you don't have this and you don't do this and you don't go here, they're really more zealous about that. That's what he says in verse 15. You're zealous about it, and what you've done is make them twice a child of hell, as much as a child of hell as you are. Church, there's no getting around this. He is saying to them, your religion of extending your own rules and authority outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only sending you to hell, it's sending others. Secondly, Secondly, you overemphasize rules while overlooking a relationship with God. In verses 16 through 24, we find woes two, or excuse me, three and four. And he says there, you have made religion all about rules. You have made your religion all about the rules. And by the way, what he says in verse 16 and following is, your rules are not even logical. Look at what he says, blind guys, guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound to the oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. 
you blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus is saying you have made your religion all about these rules that you, by the way, have come up with in your own authority And you've missed the fact that what God wants to do in the temple, at the altar, is be in relationship. These these are places that represent the presence of God relating to the people of God. And you have made it all about these rules that deal with the gold and the sacrifice. And it's not about any of that. It's about meeting with God. It's about having a relationship with Him and worshiping Him. And you made it about all of your rules. And so he goes further. What he says as he continues on in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Listen to what he says, verse 24, You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You have overemphasized the rules while overlooking a relationship. Here's what he says. You're majoring on the minors. I love verse 24, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. In the Old Testament, both a gnat and the camel are unclean. And he says, you were concerned about the gnat and didn't even look at the camel you're swallowing. Now, I kind of get what he's saying a little bit here, especially in light of the next one. But here, if I were to have a cup of drink and I see a gnat in it, I'm done with it. Right? I don't like a gnat. I understand them not liking anything in there. I'm a kind of a, a germ freak or phobia, if you want to say something like that. I, I don't like drinking after anybody. I certainly don't like drinking after a fly or a gnat's been in my cup. And so I am all about that. You see this gnat and you strain it out. you got to get that out of what you're drinking or what you're eating there. And he says you're doing that and you're concerned about this little bitty gnat and you don't even care that you're swallowing a camel. You don't even notice it. It's kind of akin to the fact that what he's saying is like being concerned about a fly in your bowl of soup that is full of poison and the soup itself is going to kill you. Jesus says you're majoring on the minors. You're looking at little things. Now they were called to tithe, verse 23. They were said to tithe even of their vegetables. And he says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And Jesus is thinking about the smallest plants that they could grow in their garden. And he's saying, you're you're tithing on the smallest plants and making everybody do so. But you miss the more weightier things of justice and mercy and faithfulness. May it not be so. My friends, you could make religion all about your little rules. And they may be good things for you to think about. But if we don't get mercy and justice and faithfulness, it kind of reminds me of Micah chapter 6 verse 8, doesn't it? What does the Lord require of you, old man? But to do justly, to walk holy, to live holy and to walk humbly with your God. Justice and mercy, to love mercy, to walk humbly. Church, this is what we're called to do. Don't miss the forest for the trees, right? That's what he's saying here. Don't strain out gnats when you're swallowing camels. 
You overemphasize your little rules while you overlook the fact that you don't have any kind of relationship with God. My friends, I want to tell you in this place today, it's possible that you're sitting here checking boxes off in your life and thinking, I'm okay because I'm keeping a tab of all the rules, of all the good that I'm doing, of the money that I give every once in a while, and the things that I say to people, and I say more nice than I do evil, and I do more good than I do harm, and I'm keeping a tab in my life, and it's possible that you keep all the rules in your life and miss the fact that God desires you to worship, love, and obey Him. To be in relationship with Him. And friends, this morning, if you are not in the presence of God, if you don't know personally the Savior, then you could be religious and more religious than anybody in here and be on your way to hell. Don't overlook the relationship in order to overemphasize your rules. Thirdly, Woes number 5 and 6 beginning in verse 25. We overemphasize outward appearances while overlooking inner affections. It's my favorite one. I come back to it very often. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You clean the outside of the cup while the inside is nasty. I just mentioned that I don't like... Germs. I, I don't drink after anybody. Some of you have made fun of me about that. I don't drink after my own spouse. I don't drink after my kids. I just can't, I can't stomach. I have drank after Ryan. Thank you for raising your hand. He drank out of my drink and made me drink it. Uh, he didn't make me, he just didn't tell me. And then he told me afterward. So I went to the bathroom and got rid of it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but if I can help it, I don't drink after people here Jesus is talking about the nastiness inside a cup. Now, if I see a cup that has nastiness in it, which for me includes just about anything except sweet tea, um, then I want to clean. I don't, I'm not concerned about what's on the outside of the cup. I'm concerned about what's on the inside of the cup, and you know that. It, it just stands to reason. Jesus is using really simple illustrations here to say, why in the world would you ever clean the outside of the cup and say, oh, this is really good. You can drink out of it. You wouldn't. That's the point. So why are you concerned about your appearances? Now, church, let me say this to us because I think this is somewhere that we need to slow down. There may be remaining sin in us because this is one of those major areas that we struggle with. We are concerned about appearances just like the Pharisees. And that is dangerous enough that you and I may be religious and may be cleaning the outside of the cup and yet on the inside have no cleanness, no holiness, no gospel at all. And if that's the case today, then you could convince anybody sitting here because the reality is you can sit by people in church and in Sunday school and you can even live by people for a period of time and cover up the inside of the cup and worry about cleaning the outside of the cup and yet be just nasty inside and lost and on your way to hell. Friends, I want you to hear these words. You and I, as people who love and know the Lord, must be honest about what's on the inside of the cup. 
We do what the Pharisees do. We come in here and we put on our happy faces and we act like everything is good. And we want everybody to think, oh, that person, man, they just love the Lord. Somebody asks, how is life treating you? How is it going? You say, man, if it was any better, I'd be in heaven. And on the inside, we're dying. I've seen this particularly over the last couple of months in marriages. Now, I'm not calling your marriage out, and I haven't said or heard anything about anybody's marriage in here, but I want you to know that if you come and sit here with people and your marriage or your finances or your anxiety or your depression or your uh, thought life or your sinfulness in your own life that you're hiding from everybody, if that's inside and you're not willing to come here and open up and say, I'm struggling on the inside of the cup. I'm not going to worry about the outside. Y'all can think whatever you want to on the outside of my cup. I need you to be concerned with what's going on in here, in my heart. Church, if we cannot be open and honest together in here about the inside of the cup, then no one will ever be attracted to the gospel. Because the people out there know that the inside of the cup is nasty and dirty and they would not want anything about it. Uh, 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 Drinking out of that cup... And they come in here and they see us all with pretty outside of the cup. And they see glimpses in the world and they know who you are in the world. And they think, how could they act like they're a believer? Church, if you and I will open up in here to each other, we will be able to live the gospel together. And we will be able to push one another toward holiness and forgiveness and hope. And the world will be attracted to that. Whereas if you and I come in here and we clean the outside of the cup and the inside is nasty and we're dead inside and there's dead people's bones in our lives, then you and I will never be attractive to those who need the gospel because they know the inside is messed up. And they don't care about the outside. They want the inside clean. So friends, this morning, let me ask you, would you be willing to be a part of a body of Christ who would say, we are sinners gathered together here and we need the inside of our cups clean. That means two things. It means, number one, we're going to have to not quite expect perfection of each other. And we're going to have to be gracious when somebody says, I'm struggling with sin, and not go, Sin? You can't be sinner in here. But you say, you know what, I've struggled with that, or I know somebody who has. I can walk beside you with that. Aren't you glad the gospel covers our sin? On the other hand, it's going to mean that we're going to have to be transparent enough to say, I struggle with sin, even if people go, you do? Because what will ultimately happen is we'll all kind of agree together, we still struggle. And we need one another to be holy. Don't walk around with whitewash on the outside of your life so that everybody avoids you and thinks, oh, they're good. Don't overemphasize appearances while overlooking what's inside. Because my friend, it doesn't matter what the outside of the cup looks like. When you stand before a holy Savior, He's not going to judge what you look like on the outside. He's going to go straight at your heart. And He wants to know, who do you love? Who do you believe? Who do you worship? And friends, if it's not Him, it doesn't matter how clean the outside of your life has been. There's hell waiting for eternity for those who don't allow Him to clean the inside of your cup. 
You see, the bones were really serious in Israel. You could not be in contact with anything dead. Why? It's unclean. But what happens when our Savior gets in contact with anything dead or unclean? It becomes clean and alive. Let Him into your life. He will make you whole and new. But you can't overemphasize your outward appearances and overlook that inner affections. It's your heart that matters. That's what he's saying. Notice just in passing, verse 26. He, makes, he said all of this in plural. Pharisees, scribes. Verse 26, he comes down and makes it individual to you and me. You, blind Pharisee, one person. You, you have to clean the inside of the cup and then the outside will become clean. Let's move. Final woe. You overestimate your own righteousness while overlooking reality. You overestimate your own righteousness while overlooking reality. Let me summarize verses 29 through 36 if I can. Jesus says in verse 29, You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate monuments of the righteous. What He says is you look at those who have died and whom Israel and your forefathers killed before you. I sent prophets, you killed them. I sent scribes and Pharisees, or excuse me, scribes and leaders, those who would interpret the text to you, and you stoned them, you put them in prison. Think here with me about Isaiah, about Jeremiah, about Ezekiel, about all of the minor prophets. The people of God would not honor them. Think about Zechariah, who we're going to read about in just a moment, was killed. Think about all these people that God sent to His people to say, come back to God. Turn to God. And He says, you now, you Pharisees, you make, you make decorate your monuments to them and you build great tombs to these prophets. And He goes on to say, and you say, if we were alive then, we would not have killed them. He says, but you testify against yourself by your own life. Because you're overestimating your own view of yourself. You're, you're overestimating your own righteousness. So what he says is that, look at verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? What he says is you say that we wouldn't be like that, but you're just like that. You say that we're too righteous to condemn prophets, but you're getting ready to kill me. The Son of God. And so that's what he goes on to say. Verse 34, Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. He says, I'm sending. He changed the present tense. I'm sending them to you, and you will kill and crucify them. I think he's speaking of his own, his own life. You're going to crucify me. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Think about the Apostle Paul all through the book of Acts. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the innocent Abel, whose brother killed him, and who the Bible in Genesis 4 says his blood is crying out from the ground for revenge, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah. And here we have Zechariah, who in 2 Chronicles chapter 24 is stoned as a prophet of God. And when he's stoned, he cries out, God, will you see what's going on and avenge the death of your prophet? So both Zechariah and Abel, their blood cries out for avenging, and it will come. And God says, you are guilty. Church, this would be like you and I coming to the Lord and coming to here and, and seeing that Jesus is crucified and saying, well, if I lived back there, I wouldn't have cried out, crucify him. And Jesus would say, you're overestimating your own righteousness. You don't know how wicked you are. Come to me. Friends, if you overestimate your unrighteousness, you can overlook the reality that you are lost apart from Christ. 
come to Him. That's the cry. That's what He says through this entire passage. Now, let's briefly look at the exclamation of Jesus. Look at verse 37 with me. We'll close with this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Here, church, we have Jesus saying, I have sent prophets and you have killed them. You have stoned them. Think about they stone or will stone in just a few chapters. In Acts chapter 7, they'll stone Stephen who comes and preaches the gospel to them. They're going to kill Jesus, the prophet of God who has come. And he says this to them in the end of verse 37. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not. Last week when I began the sermon, I said to you, when someone asserts authority and invites you to trust in him, you will either respond one of two ways. You'll either harden yourself and be an enemy, which will ultimately end a hostility to that person that has asserted authority, or you will submit yourself under that. My friends, Jesus is lamenting Jerusalem because their rebellious hearts have kept them from hearing and responding to the gospel. They have kept them, their rebellious hearts have kept them from repenting and trusting in Jesus. And the question comes to us as Jesus exclaims this, How about you? And Jesus ends like this, verse 38, See? Your house is left desolate. Now notice, while ago he called it before in the temple, this is my house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus has now, talking about the temple, has left it. He's withdrawn his presence. He says, your house, you'll not see me anymore here because the God that you are trying to relate to has left here because you don't even know him and you will not respond to him. He says, verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until, unless... You say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the invitation. The exclamation of Christ is, your religion will get you nowhere. You need Christ. And unless you come to him acknowledging who he is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You have no hope. So friends, this morning, I want to ask you two questions. If you don't know the Lord... Would you come to know Him? Would you walk out of this place yet again today and and reject Jesus who says, I came to die for you. I have made a way for you to enter into life. Repent and believe. And this morning, you can trust in your religion. You can trust in your goodness. You can trust in your appearances. And you can walk out of here just like everything's okay yet again and be on your way to hell. Or you can turn to Christ. Those of us who know the Lord, I want to ask you, are you struggling this morning? Has this revealed any remaining sin in you? Are there places in you where you need to just confess to the Lord and say, Lord, this is remaining sin and you need to take it. I struggle with this, rules or appearances or any of these things that we've talked about. Would you repent and believe in Him this morning?